Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. This week, a special podcast. On Sunday, Haaretz partnered for the second time with the UCLA Nazarian Center for an online conference on Israeli politics and policy. This year's theme was Israel and the New World Disorder. At the conference, Haaretz deputy editor and sometimes podcast host Amir Tibon moderated a panel on the war in Ukraine and the new Cold War. The panel reviewed the effects of the year-long war on Israel and its relationships with the global powers. Participating in the panel were Ephraim Halevi, the ninth director of the Mossad, former Knesset member Ksenia Svetlova, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and executive director of the Regional Organization for Peace, Economics and Security, Amos Harel, our Haaretz defense analyst, and Yair Navot, a journalist and Russia analyst who was former Moscow correspondent for the Israeli Public Radio and for Yidiot Akronot newspaper. Enjoy the panel. Thank you for joining us for a panel on Israel and the new Cold War. As the war in Ukraine enters its second year, it's clear by now that this is not a regional conflict just between Russia and Ukraine, but part of a much larger battle for democracy and freedom that involves countries all over the world. And today, with a great team of experts, we're going to ask what is Israel's role in this battle? Where do we stand? What have been the implications for world Jewry as well? Uh, how is this war affecting the Middle East at large? A lot of interesting issues to, a lot of interesting issues to discuss. And with us a great panel today, former Mossad chief Ephraim Alevi. Hello, Ephraim, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Amos Arel, our national security uh, and defense analyst at Haaretz. Hi, Amos. Hi. Ksenia Svetlova, former member of Knesset. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. And Yair Navod, a journalist and analyst, formerly the uh, uh, Israeli public broadcaster's correspondent in Moscow. Hi, Yair. Hi, hello. Um, so we'll get to everything right away. Ephraim, I want to start with you. As we are marking this one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, are you surprised by where, where the war is standing today? Because when it started, I remember a lot of smart people saying Putin will take Kiev in a week. I won't say that I guessed in advance that uh, what happened uh, was going to happen. But there was something which uh, was a first step before the war broke out, which was very unique. And that was the visit to Moscow of the director of the CIA, Bill Burns, who I happen to know quite well. And he, for the first time, used intelligence in a way that has never been used before. He came to tell President Putin that if he launched the war, he would probably not win it. And he put the facts on the table. And therefore, throughout this year, I was saying to myself, Bill Burns did something which uh, has never been done before, but it was also very, very, very unique and very, very useful and uh, produced the ultimate result. So, yes. I was, not, I was surprised because I didn't know what was behind it in terms of the substance. But the war began in a very strange and unorthodox manner. And when Bill Burns did that, by the way, uh, I think a lot of people maybe were skeptical, but the events have proven him right. Absolutely. And it has shown that uh, intelligence, uh, as of then, has changed dramatically over this last year in many ways. And even today, as we uh, mark the first anniversary 
intelligence's gain is playing a very big role. And uh, what's going to happen the second year already is a different story than the second year in any other war. So, Ksenia, I want to turn to you. You've become one of the most prominent uh, analysts discussing this on Israeli television in the last year. And when you look back at the first days of the war and where we stand today, what has been the biggest surprise factor for you? Well, um, I think that uh, what was most surprising for me uh, is, of course, the um, unbelievable steadfast of the, of the Ukrainians. Um, I knew that the army was rebuilt and it was actually born uh, since 2014, since the annexation of Crimea. And yet, uh, I think that, again, it was hard to expect to what degree uh, they had changed, how uh, uh, centralized uh, everybody were uh, around the central leadership uh, and, uh, you know, the army command, and how effective they were. I think that it was a pleasant surprise in all of this. There were a lot of fears. Um, I was uh, very frightful when, uh, you know, the American intelligence was talking about taking Kiev in three days, losing Kiev in three days, and Zelensky uh, was offered a refuge, I remember my heart was pounding. When, because When we heard these stories that Biden wanted to invite him yes. maybe to Washington, or maybe he would go to London or Poland. Yes. And, uh, you know, uh, I said, well, you know, if Ukraine will fall, everybody will fall, Moldova, the Baltics, perhaps Poland as well, who knows? Uh, but this is something that you know, if this would happen, it's like a domino effect. And in a few days, I just went over my Twitter, uh, Twitter uh, uh, from the last year, um, when you know we saw hour, hour after hour how it unfolds. It became very clear that the Ukrainians are not what the world used to think about. Amos, I want to turn to you and ask what are what have been the biggest lessons for Israel so far in this first year of the war? And you covered this both on the diplomatic level when there has been a lot of controversy around Israel's position in the war and also from the military point of view. Going back to what Ephraim and Ksani have mentioned, uh, part of this was the fact that the Israelis, like most um, analysts around the world, got this uh, absolutely wrong. Uh, the general feeling in the beginning was that it wouldn't take uh, Putin too much time to take control of Kiev, that he could uh, manage a surprise, not exactly a surprise attack, but a commando, an elite attack, which would end in either uh, killing or uh, arresting uh, Zelensky, and that that would be the end of the story. This was the intelligence was, estimate on our side. That was, at least that was the general sentiment. Whenever I talked to uh, generals on the Israeli side for the first uh, week or two, it was quite clear that this is what they were expecting. And they were yet under the impression of what the uh, Russians managed to do here in Syria when they helped the uh, Assad regime in 2015. It turned out, of course, that the Ukrainians were a much uh, a better opponent, more equipped, more willing to fight than anybody maybe, else in, in Maybe in, the in Ukrainians saw what happened in Syria and realized some lessons from Perhaps that. that's true as well. Um, after a year, this is a very different war. Uh, for many uh, years, uh, analysts spoke of, uh, of the change in wars and the fact that you will not have, again, a case in which uh, uh, big militaries will fight each other in so-called industrial wars, tank against tank, and so on. And suddenly we're discussing now how uh, Germany and other European countries would supply the Ukrainians with more tanks. And we will see more tanks fighting each other uh, within a few uh, weeks. So in a way, we, we went back a little. It's more, um, 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 it might remind you of some of the previous uh, wars as, as well. But I think the greatest lesson of them all, and this is something that Xenia has already alluded to, 
is the, the willingness to fight. In the end, the fact that the Ukrainians felt that they were right about this, that they were defending their own country, that, that they had every right to do anything by any means necessary to stop the Russians from invading their country, this was the most important issue. And this is uh, the reasons why the uh, um, uh, Russians uh, were prevented from uh, fulfilling their uh, plans. It, it may end differently. We will have to see how the second uh, year evolves. But other than that, it's quite clear that the Ukrainians' willingness to fight has changed the course of this war. And a few words about Israel from the beginning, basically a policy of neutrality in this war. Yes, it was under Bennett and then Lapid and now Netanyahu. But in the end, you cannot see a real difference between the three uh, different prime ministers on this. Uh, all three uh, feared the Russian response. All three are perfectly aware of the fact that we have the Russian presence here in uh, northwest Syria, uh, that we should uh, tread lightly because we have a, a bear, a giant bear at our back door, so to speak and try to avoid taking sides. I think by now, after a year, it's quite clear that from a moral point of view, Israel should do much more than that. And suddenly you hear different voices, not exactly among the coalition, but for instance, uh, um, former minister Zev Elkin, who just came back from the Ukraine, uh, spoke differently about the need to give the uh, Ukrainians uh, military assistance, and not only for defensive um, uh, goals, but also uh, things that could help them actually attack the Russians. This is a gradual change. I don't think that Netanyahu is, is there yet, but I think that the more we hear, the more frustration we hear from both Zelensky and the international community about Israel's role, the more there's a chance that Israel would finally do more for Ukraine than it is doing right now. Interesting, and we'll get back to this in a second. Yair, I want to ask you, um, Amos mentioned the Israeli fears of the big Russian bear. Uh, has Russia been exposed here as a fragile empire? Um, maybe some of the fears are exaggerated? Yeah, it looks like that, because I think we need to remember after what we saw uh, in Syria, we were quite impressed. People were impressed with the, with the level of the, <coughs> the Russian military, how they operated. And uh, I think there was a sense of, uh, of fear. And that one day this big machine, military machine, uh, will show its force. And uh, a lot of people thought before Ukraine that this is what we're going to see. But uh, actually, all this huge uh, budget that went into the Russian army disappeared somewhere in, in the, on the way. And what we saw eventually was uh, a big Russian army which uh, didn't operate as we thought before. Um, and I think um, it was very, very clear uh, after around two weeks or so that this is something different. And, uh, and the, the, the Russian army is, uh, I wouldn't say uh, weak, but for sure not strong as we thought before. Uh, it was very obvious. Uh, you, could, you could see, you could, you could uh, see all the videos from Ukraine, how, uh, how the Russians sent tanks on, main, on the main roads, like targets, clear targets to the Ukrainians. Something obviously was very wrong there. Um, and I think it also helped the Ukrainians to overcome this fear and um, manage to, uh, to change the picture dramatically within two or three months. So Xenia, uh, connecting to what Yair said, the Ukrainians overcame their fear, but it seems, and this also connects to what Amos mentioned, that Israel on the diplomatic level is still very fearful of Russia. Although we did see Foreign Minister Eli Cohen visit Kiev uh, a few weeks ago, the overall strategy has not shifted yet. Uh, exactly, and I think this dilemma, uh, it was very present in, during Cohen's visit uh, to Ukraine. 
when he uh, visited Bucha, where horrific war crimes were committed. And this is that something that was already stipulated by the United Nations uh, and other international organizations. And uh, while uh, expressing sympathy uh, with the victims, still the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, felt short of mentioning the perpetrator. Yeah, he didn't say the Russia, word Russia or Putin. Russia or, or yeah. Putin or Russian army or anything uh, you know, of this. Uh, so we are still trying to work the fine line. We are still trying to you know, like, uh, uh, be nice with each side uh, without offending uh, too much. Uh, I do not uh, believe that uh, this line uh, can eventually change significantly. There could be a few, you know, things here and there uh, that uh, Israel, uh, Antony Netanyahu, or any other prime minister for this fact, it could be, you know, Benny Gantz or anybody else, but I don't think, don't see the red line changing uh, so much because uh, the problem was with, you know, basically having this red line from the very beginning. Israel, uh, since the very beginning, basically said to itself, this is as far that I'm willing to go. Yes to humanitarian aid, uh, yes to maybe treating the Ukrainians in our hospitals. We did it for Syrians, after all, so why not for Ukrainians? But rather than that, nothing. Of course, after one year, it's extremely difficult to change any of this because it became rigid. The structure that we created with our own hands became very rigid. And even if people within the you know, defense system understand very well now that Russia, yes, it is still a bear. It's not a, a, a paper tiger, uh, but it's also not the uh, monster you know, that uh, we should be fearing uh, and uh, risking uh, our alliance uh, with the global West, with the molecular activist as this is something that is a uh you know, if, as an Israeli, it frightens me a lot because it's not only a question of whether we will be uh, selling to Ukrainians these kind of types of weapons or not. Where do we belong if we are looking at the global alliances as this uh, alliance of the uh, bad and the good? Where, you know, if you are looking at the United mm -hmm. Nations, if you are looking at North Korea and Iran and Belarus standing with Russia, yes, we are voting with the rest of the world. But where are we when we are actually needed? And this is a question that also connects, I think, to some of the internal debates that are happening in Israel right now, even though it's a foreign policy one, because it reflects on questions of uh, liberal democracy versus other kinds of uh, values and systems of government. Uh, Ephraim, I want to pose a similar question to you. When you look at the government, <coughs> and it's like Amos said, three prime ministers, but the, go the government really has continued um, with these uh, um, approaches toward the war. Um, do you think we're making a mistake here, or do you see the logic of uh, not uh, getting uh, Mr. Putin too angry? I think that uh, one of the questions is, uh, what will the, the next few months bring? And uh, a few days ago, there was a very interesting broadcast uh, of The Economist on this. Uh, in one of their um, uh, appearances, they have a, a regularly, they have a uh, a, uh, a um, opportunity to watch them talking and so forth. They have a very brilliant uh, military expert called Shashank Joshi, uh, who's head of their military desk and who has a very, very uh, good reputation in the past. Uh, he uh, served in uh, the Rusi uh, uh, um, center in London, and he is a man of uh, a lot of knowledge and he, they have a lot of sources. Uh, he uh, was very confident in saying that he thought that uh, despite the fact that you uh, put in uh, uh, more or less uh, let it to be uh, believed that he had uh, formed a new army of over 100,000 people, 
that this is not the case, that there is not such an army of 100,000 people. And therefore, um, the next few months will not be a major uh, uh, offensive, certainly not of the uh, scope that they began with a year ago. And uh, this, of course, means to say not that the war is going to end tomorrow morning, but it also means to say that uh, they will have to uh, uh, think better than they thought before as to how they go about. And one of the things that obviously they have been trying to mend is their relationship with China. And China that could be a supplier of weaponry and maybe even uh, in certain circumstances uh, military forces, although I don't believe that the Chinese will be very happy to send military forces to Russia. And I don't think that the Russians would like the, uh, uh, shall we say, the uh, shame of having to have Chinese uh, soldiers to fight for them. And therefore, I think the options that uh, are in front of uh, Putin are uh, very, very grim. Uh, he's a very good actor. He's an extremely good actor. He knows how to act the way he speaks in uh, private meetings and also in public. But I think that uh, it is not a foregone conclusion that the next year will be a year in which we will have a similar uh, major offensive of the kind we saw a year ago. Interesting. Uh, Amos, when you hear these uh, expectations and the forecasts about the military movements, um, that reminds me that one of the biggest issues here in Israel regarding the war in Ukraine has been the question of should Israel supply all kind of defensive systems to the Ukrainians? There has been discussion of Iron Dome and David Sling. Um, has there been any progress on that front? And do the Ukrainians really need these systems from Israel? I mean, they're getting so much help from the United States and other countries right now. I think there's been a slight progress and we may see, may hear some good news uh, regarding that in good news for, next, for, for, for Ukraine in, yeah, for in Ukraine. the next uh, few weeks. <coughs> it's not going to go very far, but going back to your uh, question, some of this is symbolic. You have to remember that Zelensky is Jewish, that he has a special relationship or a special um, um, the way he sees Israel, and he still thinks, it may seem strange to some of us, but he still sees an importance <coughs> in the moral support of the state of Israel when uh, he considers uh, the, the fight for, for the survival of Ukraine. If you, you may compare that to 1967 or 1948. Mm -hmm. So he wants the symbolic uh, help of Israel. And this is why he kept mentioning uh, issues like Iron Dome and even David Sling, that's not really practical in any way. There's uh, one or two systems, it's not something that Israel could deliver to anybody else. When you talk about Iron Dome, Iron Dome is a trademark by now. People talk about that for 11, 12 years, There's the success of the Israeli technology and so on. The Israeli army uh, answers quite bluntly that they need all the batteries they have. And if, and, and we've seen in recent times how quickly things can escalate here, mm. we need them for the defense of Israel. We saw it two years ago in the That's war uh, with Gaza at the time that basically the Within US had to resupply Israel and, and immediately after it ended. That was re regarding the actual intercepting rockets, but also there's a question of how many batteries you deploy. And most of them you need in the case of war in Gaza, but if war breaks uh, with Iran or with Hezbollah, then you need all the help you can get. So uh, Israel is not keen on supplying those 
systems. Then there's quite a lot of other things that are not necessarily lethal or what they call uh, kinetic uh, weapons. For instance, it has been talked about for ages now, Israel could um, give them help regarding their alarm system. Right now what happens is that whenever uh, a drone, uh, Iranian attack drones are uh, uh, flying over Kiev or uh, all kinds of cruise missiles are, are sent in that direction, all of Kiev goes underground because everybody fears the, the result. Now, you live uh, across the border from Gaza, you're quite familiar with the fact that whenever there's an alarm, it can be around two or three kibbutzim and that's it, and everybody else can continue sleeping because the Israeli army has uh, become that good in, in, uh, in realizing in advance where the actual missile is about to, to land. So if we can supply them with that kind of system, which is not a big deal to do, that could help them quite a lot. There are also uh, discussions of, um, for instance, all kinds of systems that can jam GPSs in order for to make the other side, uh, the other side's attacks less accurate. Uh, there is talk of supplying them with intelligence regarding the Iranian drones. All of these things are beginning to happen, but not at the rate and not as quickly as the Ukrainians have, uh, have hoped. If I may want to comment on, on that. <clears throat> yes, I think there's one aspect of this, Amos, which is also worthy of mention. And the fact that uh, uh, Russia has found it necessary to receive uh, support from Iran in the form of the UAVs. Uh, the, the fact that it is taking su support from a country like Iran shows uh, uh, the degree of weakness that they have reached. Hmm. And the fact that in the end these uh, UAVs have not been very, very effective in creating any change uh, uh, in the field and uh, they have uh, not uh, changed the, the the turn of the of the uh, of the direction that the hostilities are going to take, and uh, this again is something which is 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 worthy of mention. And one other thing is worthy of mention, and we have not mentioned it up to now, was that Putin made a very fatal mistake when he met uh, the Chinese uh, president uh, days before the launch. He launched the attack, and obviously he did not uh, tell his uh, very close ally that he was going to war within a few days. And China had a very big stake in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine supplied a large quantity of wheat to uh, China uh, regularly, uh, yearly. There were 6,000 uh, uh, Chinese students in Kiev on the day that the war broke out. And he didn't think it necessary to warn him to do something about it. So all these things uh, add up to the fact that ultimately um, it's very, very possible that the, uh, unless there is some secret weaponry that uh, uh, Russia has developed that we're not aware of that will suddenly appear on the scene, and uh, then of course uh, this might change everything. But if nothing in this field uh, really will surprise us, then uh, we, not, we may not need to uh, be concerned about what's going to happen in the next few months in Ukraine. Interesting point. Yeah, yeah, I want to turn to you. Amos mentioned earlier President Zelensky's Jewish identity. Um, and he actually spoke uh, to Haaretz uh, three months ago when we had our democracy conference, gave a speech and spoke about it as well. Um, uh, there's also a big Jewish community in Russia still today and in Ukraine, also a sizable Jewish community. What has been the, the impact of this war on the Jewish life in these two countries? Well, I think that we need to remember that this is a, a part of the calculations also of the Israeli government. 
In, uh, in Russia, you have today at least 200,000 Jews. In Ukraine, also, you have a big uh, community of uh, Jewish people. And, and I think that uh, when Israel is uh, considering how to act, of course, the, this issue is always on the table. And it's uh, an important issue. Um, and so I think that uh, when we look um, at the Jewish community in uh, Russia, we see different reactions from uh, different parts of the, of the community. Uh, we uh, saw that, for example, the chief rabbi of Moscow, Pinchas Goldschmidt, uh, left Russia. Came to and, Tel Aviv, I think. Yeah, and criticized the war, criticized Putin, um, and was very candid in the way he did it. Uh, but still, for example, uh, Chabad, uh, which is, a very, is very strong in Russia, and the uh, chief rabbi of Chabad, uh, Berlazar, stayed in Russia, didn't really condemn. Um, and, it, it, and I think that this is also, uh, uh, when, you, when you look at this uh, situation, it can tell you exactly you know, how, how the Jewish community is, again, a, a kind of a, a chip, like a bargain chip within this uh, bigger picture. And of course, the Russians know it. Know it. And uh, it also has to do with the uh, with the Sochnut, uh, Yeah, the complex. Jewish agency yeah, the exactly. idea of shutting them down. We, this trial has been ongoing for ongoing almost a year for months now. now, and I, I suspect that it will go on like that for for a while uh, until the Russians will get to a conclusion how what to do. It depends also, of course, on the, what Israel will do. So yes, the Jewish community is, is is part of this of this of the picture, part of the game. And there is another thing that I wanted to add about, about um, the, the Russian uh, policy and, it, and its uh, policy towards Iran. Because we see in the last uh, few months how there is a, a dipping cooperation more and more. Uh, and, and I think this is also something which could or might uh, change the attitude of the Israeli government in its policy towards Russia. Uh, when the Russians are cooperating so closely with Iran, um, you know, there are Iranian uh, pilots in Russia being trained on the Sukhoi 35. Uh, there is a deeper and closer cooperation. And I'm sure that in Israel, uh, they are watching very closely what's going on, and it might affect future decisions. So this is an interesting uh, comment on the policy-making level, Ksenia. I want to ask you more on the public opinion level. I remember a few years ago, Prime Minister Netanyahu, in his election campaign, when we used to have one every six months, um, showcasing posters and huge advertisements of himself with Putin shaking hands and uh, celebrating their supposed friendship. Has the events of the, the last year, um, including this alliance with Iran, shifted the views of Putin and Russia in the Israeli discourse, in the public opinion over here? Well, uh, yes and no, uh, because, uh, for example, in the poll that was conducted by Mitvim Institute uh, for Foreign uh, Studies, um, we found out a few months ago that Russia is being graded as the second most important country for Israel. After and the United after States. After United States, very close to the United States and with big, you know, difference from European Union, from the Arab countries and so on. And when you're thinking about the importance of, for example, trade relations with Russia. I mean, this is a very small, it's a sliver of what we have, I mean, even with Turkey. Yeah. Or, uh, or, or the, other U, the EU is the our EU, biggest I'm partner. Even, yeah. I'm not even describing this because yeah. it's like tenfold. Uh, but still, in the public opinion, Russia is still 
a very it's a mighty country. It's a country that we don't want to cross. Uh, Putin is still uh, the leader that some believe that he might prevail. And you know, look what he's doing to Ukrainians. Look at all of the damage he is wiping their cities. Uh, we should stay out of his way. This is the this is the uh, basically the outcome of this. Now, uh, if I'm looking at uh, Netanyahu, the man who was taking pride at his very personal good relations, uh, then again, you know, I'm looking at his memoir, Bibi, that was published already into the war. Uh, and just a few months ago. Yeah. Just a few months ago. And it had a very specific description of his uh, talks with Putin, some praise to Putin as a very uh, uh, wise and strong leader and so on. Any this criticism? is already a few, not a, any, no criticism. Not a single <laughs> word of I did no. not read the book, so no. I, I have to I trust you already. <laughs> I, I read specifically, it's a 600 uh, yes. pages uh, <laughs> a volume, so you know, I read specifically the chapter where he described Putin because it was interesting. Uh, and you see there a real admiration. I mean, you know, uh, again, we are different countries. Obviously, we have different regimes, different methods. But I cannot not to make this comparison uh, of maybe a sense of detachment, you know, and uh, we are looking at their leader who has been there for over 20 years. Of course, it's not the same case here because Netanyahu went and, and came. But no, he was they, there. they also had Medvedev, but <laughs> it's yes. different. But, but, you know, there is this sense of detachment from the rest of the world and what's going on in the country, the uh, underestimation of what are the Ukrainians, what is their might. Uh, when, they, when Putin is talking about the uh, uh, demonstrators, the protesters, those who don't agree with his policy, they're anarchists. You said they, Putin, I think you meant Netanyahu this time. And oh. I think I met Putin. Aha, uh -huh, yes, okay, I, I like, I, I understand now. I met Putin, but, you know, the comparison is inevitable because yeah. here you have the leader it's of the, the democratic country yeah. who uses exactly the same language. And still believes, perhaps truly, that the people who are, uh, you know, uh, he called them the uh, anti-vaxxers, yes. you know, it's still this slight min minority that do not agree. In Russia, they are indeed a minority, but not here. Uh, so, uh, I mean, there are some, some, some lines there. In the public opinion, I think that Again, you know, in Israel, the majority of Russian speakers, if you ask me, they came from Ukraine, actually, or from Belarus, or from Moldova, but not from Russia itself. And even for those who came from Russia, I mean, I was born in Russia, but I came 32 years ago. And uh, if anything, you know, this is an example of how not to do things, how not to do policy. Uh, people do not want to be associated with any of this. But again, you know, they are a minority. They are a minority, and I think for the rest of the Israelis, it's still very much, you know, something that's very frightening. Uh, one of the top Israeli channels, the most watched, uh, viewed one, has a daily forecast for newspaper, for, for, for weather, and you have the Russia in the first place. It's first Moscow, and then New York, and then other cities. So, I mean, it's, it's telling. Small, small but interesting Small example. but telling about, you know, how is, you know, it's how? being viewed, this, this Russian giant, the Russian bear. Interesting stuff to think about. I, I, if I'm, I, I want to turn to you in a second with a nuclear question, but most before that, I, I want to connect to Ksenia's words. Um, it seems to me that the Biden administration has been very, very patient with the Israeli approach so far on the Ukraine war. I, I at certain points, expected Washington to be much tougher, uh, seeing such a close ally basically you know, <coughs> not join the rest of the democratic world in condemning Putin and supporting Ukraine. It's hard to explain why this exactly happened. I think in the beginning, uh, what you're referring to is uh, Bennett's mission. Uh, the diplomatic attempt as a sort yeah. of a mediator between Zelensky and Putin, which looked very strange from this direction, but yet nothing was said out of the White House or the State Department at that time. No, nothing disparaging 
um, regarding Bennett. When it was Bennett and Lapid, maybe the general line of thinking um, in the White House was, okay, these are our friends, our allies, uh, we expect more of them, but right now let's uh, leave things as they are. Because now, we don't want to, to hurt a government okay, that is not led I'll by Netanyahu. And I'll try the opposite explanation regarding Netanyahu. There are so many other things the uh, administration <laughs> has to fight over with Netanyahu, whether it's uh, his, uh, uh, his legal plans or the situation in the West Bank or uh, members uh, like Smotrich and Bengvir, members of his inner cabinet, uh, trying to build more settlements in the territories, maybe it's not the top priority. But I think there's still some sense in Washington. I visited the last time I was there was December. And there was some sense of frustration with Israel. In spite of everything else, yeah, you, you would expect more from us. The, the sentiment I came back with then from Washington was, uh, look, you also need to be on the right side of history. Mm. And I wrote a piece, I'm not sure, maybe about the month before I went to Washington, and that somehow it became the front page uh, story for Aritz on, on a Friday, which said exactly the same thing. The headline said, sometimes you need to be on the right side of history. And then Bennett, who retired by then, a few days later wrote a piece for Yediot uh, Achronot, and he said, the people who talk about the right side of history know nothing about history. So that was Bennett's response. <laughs> I, I beg to differ. I still think that uh, in, it, there's a moral point of view here, and I think that we've been wasting too much time regarding this. I'm not saying let's send them uh, Israeli F-35 pilots right now. We shouldn't be bombing Moscow. But I think we should probably take a, 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 a more courageous stand about this issue. Okay. Ephraim, in the early days of the war, you wrote a fascinating article for us on Haaretz.com about the nuclear aspect, uh, because the fears were very high at the time. Um, where do you see this risk standing today of Putin going all the way? I don't think Putin will go all the way. Uh, as you probably know, we all know uh, he took one more step concerning the only remaining uh, agreement on the, the nuclear aspect. Uh, and said, uh, more or less uh, intimated, that he might not renew it when the time comes. But he left the option on the table. He likes to play with this uh, uh, aspect, with this warning. <clears throat> but I really don't think that he uh, is going to entertain this. But I'd like to say two other things. First of all, let's not forget that there is a very large Muslim community in Russia. And uh, uh, I know that he has said on, on occasion, and I will not uh, vote, uh, quote directly from meetings I've had with him, but I, this is something... Uh, you were I leading the Mossad when he became president of Russia at the time? No, he was president of Russia when I was head of the Mossad, and I saw him as president, <laughs> as, uh, as head of the Mossad. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we were going to have a meeting of 20 minutes, and it lasted almost two hours. And in the end, we were like two intelligence officers uh, exchanging views. But that was not the point. Well, there's a large Muslim presence in Russia. The biggest mosque in Europe is, was built in Russia by Putin. And when he inaugurated it, the uh, guest of honor was Mr. Erdogan. And uh, in Moscow itself, there's a very large uh, Muslim presence. And uh, I've heard Russians say that there is a danger, they called it, they used the word danger, that in the years to come, because of the uh, difference in the uh, birth rate amongst Muslims and uh, uh, indigenous Russians, it might well be that uh, a situation will arise in which the majority of the population in Moscow will be Muslim. But I've heard it said, not directly but indirectly, that this is something that Russia will not allow to happen. 
uh, without telling how they will do that and how they will accomplish it. But coming again back to the uh, nuclear uh, aspect, um, I think that um, Putin realizes that, uh, and he's uh, uh, responsible enough to realize that once he enters uh, a, an operational uh, mode on the uh, nuclear uh, issue, there will be uh, a, an element of early warning here. If there's something which is watched so very closely, to do something secretly to prepare a nuclear uh, attack, uh, this is something which uh, needs a lot of uh, expertise and it may not necessarily succeed in hiding the intention. So I do not think that this is going to happen. I don't think we should uh, look at these things and we should attach it uh, so much importance and such a degree of importance. One, like, one, like, one last thing I want to say. Yes, there is a Chabad uh, presence in Moscow. And the rabbi of Zelensky is a Chabad rabbi. His name is Rabbi uh, uh, a rabbi in uh, Dnipro, and uh, he is a very fine man. Uh, we know him very well. I know him very well because uh, I have a, uh, a small little uh, uh, society which deals with uh, immigration into Israel. And uh, I think that uh, he has a lot of influence over Zelensky. And uh, if somebody really wants to get and to influence Zelensky, the ways to talk to him. So, so, so maybe instead of Prime Minister Bennett, what we needed was Chabad to do the mediation between Putin and Zelensky, is what you're saying. I think, well, you know, the, the, the rabbi himself is no longer with us. Uh, so we don't have a, uh, a, a successor. Uh, I don't think Chabad can do this. They've not done this in the past, by the way. But they are present everywhere, as you know. And that is uh, something which we uh, should uh, take into account. Definitely. Yair, I, I want to ask you uh, about the issue of immigration from these countries. Ephraim mentioned immigration from Russia, from Ukraine. It's been really on the rise. Uh, and I think actually more Jews came from Russia since the war began to Israel than from Ukraine. Yeah, I think that uh, overall in the last year, uh, more than 600,000 people left Russia. Um, and within this number, you have uh, also, of course, uh, Jewish people who uh, immigrated. Uh, many of them are from the Russian elite or the, the, the cultural elite. A lot of them are uh, skilled uh, IT people. And of course, they are part of the population and they didn't want to stay in Russia. And they were afraid that uh, you know, uh, the reality is going to be so bad, there is no point staying. It's also, and it's also, I think, uh, was a, a kind of uh, a way to show, uh, to reject the war. And we, to say that we, we do not agree with what uh, the regime uh, then is doing in Ukraine. And they, and they left. But of course, uh, many of them stayed as well, because there are many. Mm -hmm. And specifically on, on the issue of Israel and immigration, I think there's also been an, an issue with sanctions, that there's some concern that maybe Israel will become a haven for people who are trying to avoid the EU sanctions on them. Yeah, for example, because we all, uh, we all know about uh, uh, Russian oligarchs who are uh, staying in Israel and they have like kind of, a safe, kind of a safe haven in Israel, financially as well. And I think this is also uh, part of the, uh, of the reality. If I can add on the sanctions, uh, I think that uh, the fears that also, you know, some people in Israel share them, the Americans 
they did not fulfill in this regard for Israel to become a safe haven in this uh, sense. Because uh, uh, although we do not have sanctions, which I think uh, this is uh, horrible, even if there was no uh, mechanism for sanctions in the Knesset before, they had one year to <laughs> legislate, and we know that they, when they want to legislate something very quickly, they can actually do it, and they're doing it right now with the legal reform. So uh, if they wanted to, to you know, legislate, they could. But the financial system of Israel is actually in full compliance with the American sanctions and with the EU sanctions. And they are, uh, I would say, religiously comply, you know, with everything. Uh, and uh, sometimes it's even the U.S. that comes and says, listen, you are doing things that are unnecessary. <laughs> for example, the payments for the uh, elder people from Russia who receive their pensions, it's, it's nothing. But for them, it's something. It's 40, 50, 100 dollars. And this money is being stalled because it's, it's very difficult to transfer it from the Russian banking system to the Israeli one. So this is on one hand. On the other hand, culturally, I can tell you that, yes, the Russian sanctioned artists, ballets, are coming to Israel to make their buck because they are unable anymore to go to Europe to perform there. Here they are welcomed. You have uh, still the audience, also the native-born Israelis, also the, those who came from Russia and, uh, and even Ukraine, uh, that attend the concerts and then go to see the artists. Um, and uh, there is cultural influence that is also going, you know, it's very important. Uh, but the um, Russian propaganda TV channels that were banned, uh, for example, in the Latvian republics, in the UA, in the UK, in other countries as well. Here you have it's you know it's available on every provider, uh, and the people who do not know better or they have language difficulties, so on, they are basically trapped. Uh, they only you know have the thing that in Russian that they have uh, access to. It's these propaganda channels, and if you would listen only to them for a couple of weeks, then you would also think that you know there are Nazis <laughs> in Ukraine uh, and the Illuminati that are running the world, uh, and uh, George George Soros that is funding the uh, Zelensky and his army personally. Sounds to me like it's better to get your information on haaretz.com than Much these better. channels. Uh, Amos, the last question I want to turn to you and. Really, it's been such a fascinating conversation with everyone here at the table. Um, I do want to ask you one last question that has to do with Iran. Um, is it emerging emboldened from its involvement in the war with Ukraine? Uh, is Israel concerned about what the Iranians are doing there when it looks also at our homeland security? Look, Iran has made a choice. Uh, I think that in a way, uh, the Israeli media and perhaps some Israeli analysts as well have missed um, the, the importance of this move, the, this emerging alliance between Russia and Iran. This is extremely significant. It's not about, only about the Iranians supplying uh, UAVs uh, to Russia. Uh, Yair has mentioned that, uh, joint uh, exercises, um, training and so on, perhaps weapons from Russia to Iran. Uh, in the future. And you have to remember, in, at the JCPOA in 2015, it was Russia that was supposed to take care of the enriched uranium uh, being pulled out of uh, Iran. So how can you count on Russia as, as some positive force regarding future agreements uh, with Iran? This is, this is important. On the other hand, you may say that it backfired um, uh, regarding uh, Iran's relationship with the West, because because of this, and because of the brutal way in which the regime treated the hijab protests, and because of their unwillingness to go back to the negotiation table uh, regarding the, the nuclear deal, uh, the Biden administration is actually taking a tougher stance against Iran and has less to argue about with Netanyahu when it comes to the, the future uh, policy uh, towards Iran. 
So a blessing and a curse at the same time, you can As say. As usual. Amos Arel, Efraim Alevi, Ksenia Svetlova, and Yair Novot, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation, and thank you for joining us. And that's it for Haaretz Weekly. Hope you enjoyed the fascinating panel. The entire conference is available online at haaretz.com. Check it out. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv. Thank you.